All right, Michael Bond, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Saba. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, before we get too hot and heavy, I'm going to do a little uh, segment that we called How Atlanta Are You? Now, you are an Atlanta native, so I might, you know, this might be a little too easy for you, but we'll see, okay? Okay. All right. So you come from a, a family that everyone knows. I'm sure you've had a lot of interesting experiences in Atlanta. Describe, tell to me your most epic Atlanta night. What happened? Well, that would, uh, oh, it was a couple of things. One, uh, both centered around the Olympics. I was out that night partying with people uh, the night of the Olympic bombing. Uh, that that's the night that really, really struck me deeply, uh, because the, uh, you know, this is my hometown. This is where, you know, I grew up. This is my, I was on the city council. I was the youngest city council person. I mean, the world was here and I was actually on my way to Centennial Olympic park. I was literally on Marietta street. Uh, at Northside Drive when the bomb went off. And that really kind of shook me on a lot of levels. The reverse of that, there's also Olympics related, is when Atlanta was announced. I had, you know, I was a correction officer with the city of Atlanta. I worked the 11 to 7 shift in the uh, jail, not the ACDC that people know today, the building that is the Gateway Center was uh, the pretrial detention center. It was built to hold 400 people, and we had an average daily population of about 1,600. And so I worked on the 11 to 7 shift uh, because at that time they had shift differential pay. And I was in college. I was at Morehouse. I was. I got paid more. Got paid more to work at night. I was uh, raising a family. Um, and so, and of course that shift, nobody wanted to work that shift because that was considered the most dangerous shift, you know, cause it's in the middle of the night. And so even though you probably want to compliment about 35 people there on a regular shift, we had about 15 or 16 people. And so it was dangerous, but the place was packed to capacity. Uh, but the majority of the people there that worked there and were, uh, I don't want to say incarcerated, but they were detained there because it was a pretrial facility. We were all interested in the Olympics. And so on every floor of the jail, all of the inmates and the officers, that's all we did. They said they're going to make this announcement in the morning. And so everybody at every income level, regardless of whether you were a Buckhead Betty there for a DUI or if you were there for urinating on the sidewalk, <laughs> everybody was having that conversation and people were up you know, and interested. And so when we got off work, we typically went to IHOP, you know, some of the officers, but we walked from the uh, 236 Street all the way up to underground to hear the announcement. And of course, when the announcement was read, I mean, it was just pandemonium. I mean, people were excited, they were happy, and it didn't matter where you were in Atlanta, what role you had in Atlanta, uh, what status you were in Atlanta, uh, everybody had the same uh, just uh, euphoria uh, of that moment. 
I think you might end up winning this. How Atlanta <laughs> are you? Based on all the people we've interviewed so far. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, tell me, what's your favorite Atlanta restaurant? Where do you like to go? My favorite Atlanta restaurant? That's tough because I, I grew up in a family that loves to go to restaurants. I also grew up in a family that loves uh, to cook. My grandfather, uh, Claude Clopton, was the head chef at the Columbia Seminary after he got out of the Navy in World War II. So he was a Navy-trained chef. So that's a high standard when it comes to culinary arts. And he told me when I was a, a young boy, he said, Michael, never go to a restaurant when the food tastes like vinegar. They're stretching it. He said, so if you ever go in there once, you taste vinegar and the food, don't ever go back. And so through that lens is how I kind of judge restaurants. Now, I couldn't say that I have an all-time favorite. Oddly enough, my all-time favorite is a chain restaurant, but it's part of my, um, uh, I don't want to say addiction, but it is because of my father. Uh, my father loves Steak and Shake. I love Steak and Shake. I go to Steak and Shake. 24 hours a day, Doesn't, Christmas, Thanksgiving, you name it. Now, on for an indigenous restaurant, I'd have to say it's a little, it, that gets tougher uh, because I love soul food. There used to be a soul food place on Auburn Avenue in the old Auburn, Ave, Auburn Avenue rib shack called Martha's. Martha's was originally across from the Omni Hotel where the Olympic Park is, but they got bought out. And they moved over to Auburn Avenue, and they had the best soul food in the world. They couldn't survive the, you know, the the owner, the the business had been, and they'd been in business about 60 years. So the, uh, the original Martha, you know, of course, she was not running the restaurant. Her family was running the restaurant, but they couldn't survive the construction of the uh, streetcar. But they were, that was probably some of the best soul food I ever had. I love the original Pascal's. Uh, the collard greens tasted like money every day of the week. They had the best BLT sandwiches in the world. You know, the toast was always right. The bacon was always chewy. The tomatoes were always popping fresh every time you'd have that. Always had great coffee. Um, currently now, where do I like to go? I like to go to George's on Highland Burger Place. If you haven't gone, you should go because he's the cousin of Manuel's. Oh. Of Manuel Malouf, a lot of people don't know that. Uh, but they have great uh, hamburgers. And I'm going to forget somewhere. I like Six Feet Under. They have the best uh, spinach salad, you know, with warm bacon dressing. And so when I get, I always get an extra warm bacon dressing. They have the best gumbo. Uh, I love their gumbo. You know, I, I could drink it, breathe it, swim it. I love their gumbo. I'm trying to think of another good place. I, I know Those I'm forgetting some somewhere. Ones. Those are some yeah, I'm good forget, ones. I'm forgetting uh, somewhere. I'm, I know I'm forgetting something, and I'm going to make somebody mad Uh-oh. because I didn't mention Tell them to charge uh, their it to place. Your, uh, charge it to the head, not the yeah, heart. Yeah, charge it to the head, not to the heart. Right. And I'm under pressure. It was <laughs> Saba's got me under pressure, so I can't really think off the top of my head. But there are a lot of good places. A lot yeah. of good. Places. I, I, I love, uh, particularly homegrown places, mm -hmm. places that are. That you have to look for. Right. Oh, you know what I like? Mix It Up Burger. I don't think I've heard of now, that. Now, Mix It Up Burger's on Boulevard near um, Boulevard and uh, I guess that's Memorial. I think they started off as a food truck. And my uh, one of the ladies I work with, Vanessa Manley, turned me on to this place. Now, these burgers are so good. I don't put ketchup, no condiments on them. 
they just make them and I just eat it as it comes. And it is probably the, some of the best tasting uh, ground beef that. Uh, I'll have to check that one out. I'll have to check it out. I miss Alex Barbecue. Uh, Alex Alexander, who ran the place, was the original football coach down in Fort Valley. My my grandfather, Horace Manbaugh, was the first black president of Fort Valley. And so we've been friends with their family. Now, Pam Alexander, who's the daughter of Alex, was on the city council with me when I first got elected when I was a young man. And we used to tease them. He said they made the best barbecue without any meat. Because after, you know, after Alex had gone on to glory, you know, Pam ran the restaurant and it was, it became a very eclectic barbecue place and they had great food. And but a lot of times they didn't have any meat, oh, but the, the line would okay. still be out the door, you know, trying to, trying to get the other goodies that were, that were there. So I miss that place. But another place I like is Silver Skillet down on 14th street. Cause that to me, if I don't want to offend anybody, but that's like the white Pascals. It tastes like how the original Pascals tasted over on MLK. Now I like the new Pascals over on the north side. It's so it's good, uh, but I miss the 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 bottom soul food of the of the old Pascals. So when I need to have a a, a good breakfast, I go over to Silver Skillet. Got it. Now Atlanta's known for a lot of things. What's one thing Atlanta should be known for? but it's not known for? One thing it should be known for that's not known for. Well, it's, it's the city in the trees, the city too busy to hate, the Emerald City, the Empire City of the South. Uh, but, you know, it, it should be known for uh, the bottom soul food cu culture that's here. I don't think a lot of people when you talk to people around the, the country, they don't automatically think of Atlanta as a soul food or good good food place. Um, I mean, there are a lot of restaurants here, right? There, there's a lot of high end uh, dining, uh, but you know, I, I grew up li literally right right around the corner from where we're recording your podcast, right there on Sunset Avenue off of MLK, and there has always been a long legacy of good soul food places here in and around. Uh, the city. Oh, Bankhead Fish. That's and I, 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 I knew I was going to forget somewhere like, like like Bankhead Fish. My grand, I had to default to my grandfather again. Uh, he knew all these restaurant tours, you know, particularly people that, that were mom and pop shops around around the city. And when he liked a place, it was a good place, you know. So I, I think that Atlanta is not really known for that uh, around the country anymore. Now, this thing about the lemon pepper wings and the hot sauce has gotten around. Uh, but, you know, that's I think that's only because of the show. Right. If it hadn't been on the show, most that's people right. wouldn't have known about that. That's right. You know. Well, thank you for, uh, for indulging us in that segment. Um, next, we're going to go into some of the more meatier questions. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we do that, the, the Bond name is a well-known name. But for our listeners who might be a little bit younger and aren't as familiar with your family background. Tell us a little bit about your family and your upbringing. Well, I was born and raised here in Atlanta, literally right around the corner on uh, Jephthah Street, right next door to the, eight was now the AU Center Library. My father was Julian Bond. He was the, he ended his career as the chair emeritus of the National NAACP, but started his political career over at Morehouse College 
right there at the corner of what is now Atlanta Student Movement Boulevard and James P. Brawley Drive. Uh, back then, it was uh, Chestnut and Fair Street. There was a a place that was started by a one of the first black pharmacists and an executive at the Atlanta Life Insurance Company called Yates and Milton on the corner. And he was there. It was they had you know sundries and foods and things and students. Uh, from the six AU Center schools at that time, Clark and Atlanta University had not merged at that time, uh, would hang out there. And he was approached by another Morehouse student who had been in the Navy. He was older than most, uh, Lonnie King. And they were reading about the sit-in movements in Greensboro. And Lonnie asked my dad, he said, hey, this is great. It should happen here. And my dad said, well, yeah, it'll probably happen here. And then, uh, Lonnie said to him, well, why don't we make it happen here? Mm. And my dad often said, well, before he could say, what do you mean we? You know, they were organizing uh, the Atlanta student movement that took place in 1960 that desegregated Atlanta. So my father uh, became, and that group of students, uh, they were also uh, the forerunners, the founders of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, My dad, I mentioned my grandfather, he was an educator. He was first uh, black uh, president of Fort Valley University and the first black uh, president of Lincoln University. He finished his career here at Atlanta University under Dr. Clement. Uh, but his father was James Bond, Reverend James Bond, who used to uh, pastor over at Rush Congregationalist Church, which is a uh, counter corner across from the AU Center Library in the early 1910s. And uh, he was uh, born a slave and he became, he rose from that station to become a regional regional African-American leader with the YMCA and, uh, of course, to the college he attended, Berea College. He walked 75 miles across Kentucky with a steer to pay his tuition to Berea College when he was, uh, I believe, about 15, 13 years old. And they, they taught him the equivalent of what was first grade all the way up through college level. And he eventually became one of the board members in you know, became a, 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 what my father would call a race man, not a racist, but a race man, someone who spoke up for uh, his race and was an example and fought for his race. And so my father often said that he wanted to be remembered as a race man and his political activities. And uh, uh, and that's actually what we put on his, his tombstone out there at Southview Cemetery, race man. Uh, but, Wasn't you know, it hard? Uh, just kind of, you know, you you have this rich family history, these giants in the civil rights community. How has it been for you, you know, having that legacy and the pressure of that legacy? Well, you know, it's a double-edged sword because people say, on the one hand, oh, it's so great. You come from this great family. You've got this great dad. You've got this great lineage. You've got this great legacy. But then when you attempt to accomplish things in your own life, People say, oh, no, he's living off his his family. He's living off his dad. He's living off his legacy. He's living off of this, living off of that. But if my name was John Smith and I worked in a shoe shop and my dad owned the shoe shop and I followed my dad into the shoe shop business, nobody would say, you know what, John Jones is living off his dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody would nobody would say that. So, it, you know, it's been a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, there there are benefits, but the the, the negativity that has come with it has been tremendous. It is very difficult for anyone that has a famous or celebrity or well-known parent to kind of uh, live in their shadow. But 
what you can only hope to do is to make uh, footsteps beyond that that shadow, and, that, and that's what I've tried to do. And, and I'm only one of my five siblings that's been foolish enough to try to follow my parents into activism and politics. Uh, the other four, you know, have led you know, pretty successful private lives, you know, here in the here in the city and, and been able to enjoy it. But at, when we were growing up, it was five of us. Uh, I'm I'm the middle child. Uh, my dad traveled probably about. Uh, about five to six days a week because he made his living as an orator and a speaker because he was in, in demand. He was the youngest uh, person to be nominated for vice president at the, at the 68 Democratic Convention. Uh, he uh, came into office uh, in the mid-60s with Ben Brown and, and a couple of other uh, black students from SNCC uh, after a lawsuit was filed against the state of Georgia, a one man, one vote lawsuit that opened up districts, you know, because before then they were very heavily gerrymandered, you know, to give uh, whites the advantage in whatever district you live in. It doesn't matter if the district was 90% black, you know, they're going to draw the district, right. you know, or they're going to loop it around up to Valdosta to get some white people, you know, to get to, to make sure that person could get elected. So he came in with, uh, with that group and, it has it has been a struggle a, a, a lot of times because uh you know my father was so famous you know he 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 was so notable so everywhere you go and everything that you do in your life is judged against you know rightfully or wrongfully is judged against that standard you know and when my dad would come back to town you know because he was so famous uh you know he would always take us with him uh, to all of the community meetings, to the state capitals, you know, could, his office was in the capital, uh, that all of their offices were in the capital at that time. And, you know, so we were exposed to the community. We were exposed to politics. We were exposed to, you know, the controversies in the neighborhood going, you know, taking it to the street and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, my, where my brothers and sisters kind of enjoyed it, I loved it. I loved being out there in the street. I loved seeing what was going on. I loved, uh, you know, the, the 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 crowd and the people and the issues and everything that was happening. And so, you know, I wanted to do it. But you know, as I was growing up, I didn't think that I would make it a career. You know, I wanted to be an artist. You know, I'm a very very talented it's artist. It's a it's a yeah. well known secret in City Hall that yes. you are a great sketcher. Right. Get, yeah. I, I, and if depending on how much I love you or, or the, how much you've risen my ire, you may be characterized somewhere on the back of a piece of legislation. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, so I was so going to pursue that, you know, yeah. but I wound up in politics. Got it. So speaking of, you know, legislation, you've been around politics all your life. You've been in and out of city council over the years. What's something that you think folks don't understand about City Hall and about uh, the legislative process? Well, I think what people, most people don't seem to understand is uh, that I think people think that the city can do anything, you know, because they see, uh, you know, the West Wing, they see all these great shows, they see the movie City Hall, you know, Godfather, you name it, they, anything that involves politics and people project it onto their local experience. And I'm sure the folks at the county probably run into this also. Uh, but people think that, you know, the city government can basically pave the streets with gold and the sidewalks with platinum and, 
you know, you should be able to make it happen. And it's, you know, it's just not like that. I mean, you, the city, the, the power of municipalities in political theory is great, uh, but it has to be applied uh, practically. Everything has to be done practically. You have to have, uh, you know, the practical resources uh, to meet that vision. And I think that over my career, I learned that early uh, when I was in the District 3 slot uh, representing uh, West Atlanta. I started a, an annual, I, won't, I don't want to call it, 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 it amounted to a festival, uh, but we would bring all of the city departments out to Mosley Park and uh, we would let them interact with the public because there were people who worked for the city that didn't know that the city did A, B, and C. There were many more people out in the public who knew even less. And so we would try to get people together to, to try to educate them about their government, how to access their government, how to petition their government. That's all before the, the, the internet was, it, it was in existence, but nobody was really, it wasn't in full, full swing then. And so it was a great interactive experience. And at its height, I mean, we had about 10,000 people that would come out every year. One year we even had Johnny Cochran uh, come out and give free legal advice, you know, to try to, you know, to try to bring those resources to people and to the government. And so, uh, I think that's probably what it is. It's trying to meet the expectation that people have, which is high, and and try to apply the service in a practical way. So one thing you know, I hear from opponents of yours is, um, and I noticed this at a at a forum I went to is, oh, Michael Bond, you're a rubber stamp for whoever the administration is. What would you say to someone who might have that perception, whether or not it's grounded in reality? you feel free to, to let me know. Well, you know, it's, it's really not grounded in reality because uh, when I was first elected and Bill Campbell was the mayor and I knew Bill Campbell outside of politics, being exposed to him through my parents, uh, you know, people used to, used to say that, Oh, Michael, you know, you always vote with Bill Campbell, but I was probably the most vetoed person uh, during those times. Bill Campbell vetoed me almost 13 times. <laughs> And so, you know, it, it's a false perception. Uh, the reality is that the legislative body, uh, along with the interaction of the mayor, is a situation that, that forces compromise. Any legislative body, on average, 85% of the time, that body is going to vote together. It's the other 15 to 18% that, make, that makes that difference. Uh, and at the end of the day, we have a representative system that you're there to represent your constituents and get things for them. So it's not necessarily even about you. It's what you can accomplish and bring back to your community. And blessedly so, you can't do it alone on the Atlanta City Council. You have to work in concert with others to achieve your goals. And so, I mean, I think that is uh, the wrong perception. Uh, you know, I've known the current mayor since she was five years old, and I've had public disagreements and quiet disagreements uh, on, on matters of policy, but we don't take it, you know, we don't take it personal, but we have, we haven't always agreed and we're, we're down in the wool, you know, dyed in the wool, black and gold Astros from Douglas high school. So, you know, we're supposed to be thick as thieves, you know, we're supposed to be together, but you know, we still have honest disagreements. And so I think that that's just a, a false perception. Uh, but, you know, you have to have the ability to, 
reach across the aisle to 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 to, to lean on your neighbor. There's 15 of us on the city council to try to work work out these issues, and you know that's what I've done throughout my career, and that's what I'm proudest of. And I'm even proudest of when I've been alone, uh, as long as it's been a principal stand. Uh, but because there are those times when you will stand alone, but you know, I'm more proud of the fact that I've been able to work with people over the years. And I have, and as a result of that is the work that's performed. I've been able to pass more legislation than any person on average per term than any person in the city's history, living or dead. And I didn't do that by myself. You know, I did it uh, working with other people. Got it. So you represent the entire city as the mm -hmm. post one council member. How do you balance uh, really controversial legislation if one district is asking you to vote one way and another district or neighborhood is asking you to vote in the opposite way? How do you balance that tension? And what's your decision-making process? Well, you have to look at the facts of what's being presented to you on balance for what's the, the ultimate benefit for Atlanta, what's best for Atlanta. Uh, because even though we all run from different poster districts, we're elected to the city council of Atlanta. You know, members that are running, and, and I've been in a district before, and so I know uh, the pressures that a district member uh, can be on to be, uh, to have a more parochial uh, view of what is going on in, in just that one community. But you have to look at what's going to, what are the merits of the issue and what's going to be best for the city as a whole. And that's how I try to balance it. Got it. So this is your second kind of back-to-back -back election of having some fierce opposition. Is Would you attribute that to the city's changing? What would you say, you know, if you could peg why that is, what would that be? Well, you know, you develop uh, rivalries, uh, earned and unearned when you're in politics. And I know for a fact the last two elections is, is, is a result of uh, – those types of rivalries. Um, there are people that have the right to run and they should, uh, these seats belong to the public. And so when people have the opportunity, uh, they have the desire and opportunity to want to serve, they should try to serve, you know, these seats belong to the public. Uh, but you know, there, there is some, uh, portion of that, uh, that is people that don't like you try to find opposition for you. And that's a part of the American process. So you have to kind of just deal with it and just and and hope that people have uh, looked at your service and evaluate you for what you're good at, what, what your merits are, and hopefully they'll support you. So you've introduced lots of legislation over the years. Uh, name one that you are most proud of. What I'm most proud of? There's, there's a lot of that. Well, I can tell you what I'm currently most proud of, and I'm hoping that it will pass is I have a paper holding uh, presently in the Public Safety Committee that would allow our public defenders to assist uh, citizens that are being evicted. Earlier in the year, we uh, empowered our Public Defender's Office to do the same for non-citizens of this country with their immigration issues. Uh, and so we, with the... Uh, with the protections coming to an end for those who are being evicted, uh, 
I think it's important that we extend that service to our citizens. And so I'm hoping to, to pull that out. But what, some of the things that I'm proudest of uh, most recently is making sure that all of the city's properties that are surplus can go for affordable housing. Uh, affordable housing is an extremely important issue in the city. And there's not any more land that's going to be created in Atlanta. And so as we try to help extend the tide with that, uh, that we make available all buildable land uh, for the purpose of affordable housing. But one of the things I was most proud of early in my career is the, getting a, a street paved that hadn't been paved in 40 years. 40 uh, years. 40 years in its entirety. It was what was then Simpson Road is now Boone Boulevard. And I grew up right off of that street on Sunset Avenue. And there was never a time when the entire street was was paved and the community complained about it a great deal. And so we were able to find money and uh, get the entire street paid. And it changed the complexion of the street. It changed the complexion of the community. And adjacent to that, at the same time, the intersection of what was then Ashby and Simpson is now Lowry and Boone. At one time, that was the, the, the most dangerous corner in Atlanta for pedestrians. And so we were trying, and the sidewalks there, they had those octagon pavers, you know, that had been there since the 1940s that were in disrepair. And at that time, the city's ordinance said that property owners had to pay for their own sidewalk repairs. And of course, along that section of street, it was mostly senior citizens at that time. And so we were able to work and uh, get grants uh, to repair those sidewalks because there were people living directly on the street in wheelchairs. There were senior citizens that like to walk every day. And that was something that, that, that made me proud because that was the community that I grew up in. These were the people that literally raised me, watched me grow up, and we were able to give them on a return on the taxes that they had been paying. And the look in their eyes when we had the the uh, tar truck out there paving the street, and I literally got out myself and helped to spread some of the cement to fix the sidewalk. It was very, very moving. Nice. Uh, just as we wrap up, um, if you could wave a magic wand, right, and fix just one thing about the city, what would that be? I would fix uh, the city's relationship with its law enforcement. Uh, I would, because, uh, you know, the city is suffering now from a, a dichotomy. On the one hand, uh, since the time that I was a child, but I was a, a teenager and being active in the NPUL, I've heard communities clamoring for more police protection. They, they want more interaction with the police. But yet nowadays, uh, given the, it's not just the incidences over the last few years, you know, we're right in the crest of a generation of, of, of a bad relationship uh, with our community, members of our community and members of our police force that has come into a head all over the country. And one of the things people that people deserve is to be safe and cared for in their community. When I was a child, there was a guy named David Ude. He was a white man. 
he was officer friendly. And I saw him as an adult uh, when I was first elected. You know, he was he was getting ready to retire. And I still knew who he was. And every person should know who their police officers are. They should have that kind of relationship. Well, I knew him by his first name, not by the caricature of Officer Friendly. People should be able to feel assured that when they're pulled over uh, by a law enforcement officer, that they don't have to cringe, they don't have to withdraw, they don't have to uh, become tense uh, because these individuals are servants of the people. Now, probably 90% of the people that go into law enforcement are there uh, for good reasons and they're, because they're bad apples everywhere. But there, there has to be a better relationship, uh, a communal relationship, and investing in, in the safety and wellness of our, our entire community. And having worked in law enforcement in a, in a limited space, uh, I believe that that has got to be uh, the, pri the priority here to keep our community safe and, and to keep people not living in fear of those who should be serving them. Great. What are you looking for in the next city council president? In the next city council president? Good appointments. <laughs> That's a joke. Well, most people don't know that uh, the council members don't pick their own their own committees. The city council president has two powers. Uh, that's to appoint those committees and preside over the meetings, and that's it. Uh, but what I would like to see in an individual who's elected to the office of city council president is for them to they have a, a real unique space because they're really not accountable for that much uh, it, 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 on paper, uh, but they could be a great ombudsman on behalf of citizens with the administration and with council members uh, because not all council members are, are public. Not all mayors are, are per, I'm sorry, perfect. Uh, not all mayors are perfect. And so I would see that office as being a, a, a citizen's advocate. I would look for a lot of advocacy uh, on behalf of citizens across the city of, on various issues, you know. And if you're listening, you know, city council uh, candidates, you know, you can use that. You know, I'm not going to charge you. <laughs> Great. Michael Bond, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Sam. I've really enjoyed this. Great. You know? I, I hope it came across. I, I, I hope that people will enjoy it as much as I have when they listen. I think they will. All right. <laughs> All right. Hello, Atlanta. I'm Michael Julian Bond, your post one at large representative. I'm running for reelection and I'm humbly asking for your vote and support. I've worked ardently through my career to make sure that Atlanta gives you a return on the taxes that you pay. I've worked in the areas of public safety, economic development, housing, and making sure that those who are unhoused uh, receive uh, housing and protection in the community. I want to make sure that all of Atlanta is good for me, that all of Atlanta is good for you, that Atlanta becomes the city that we all aspire it to be. I'm Michael Julian Bond. Please vote on November the 2nd for Michael Julian Bond for Post One at Large. My website is bondforatlanta.com if you'd like more information. God bless you and thank you.